Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. At the end of verse 2, James mentions various trials. Trials come upon the Christian in this life, and James knew that his readers were passing through various trials, and so he brings this up in this letter. We notice that this is the very first thing that he brings up in the letter, as after his introduction in verse 1. There are always trials in this present life, Sufferings that we must go through that are common to all men. Some are peculiar to us as Christians. There are trials of every kind of among us. Disagreements, divisions, afflictions, physical afflictions, diseases, illnesses. There is the trial of old age. Trials when others do wrong to us and commit injustices against us, and there are persecutions. There are troubles that come on one in his workplace, trials of financial loss, poverty, trials of bereavement and loss of loved ones. There are natural disasters. There are earthquakes and hurricanes, floods and droughts, national calamities. There are wars. There are economic collapses. There are trials from outside of ourselves and there are trials that come from our own minds in our anxieties, our doubts and fears, our temptations and our depressions. And we could go on and on and we could list the various kinds of trials that come upon us. Trials that are different in their degree of intensity and their severity. There are trials that are different in their duration of time. Some trials last for only a little while. Some last for years and others at times even last for a lifetime. But whatever the intensity, whatever the duration of our trials are, there, may, there are always certain things that are true of every one of them for us as believers. And the first is that we know, we know for certain that they are sent to us by the sovereign God because all things are under his absolute control and sovereignty. He has ordained our days before there was yet even one of them. He has numbered the hairs that are upon our heads. There is nothing that can take place in our lives which is outside of his control. He often uses secondary means, such as other people, events, calamities, disasters that happen around us. 
He uses these secondary means, but he is always the first and the ultimate cause of all the trials that come upon us. The second thing that we may always know is that our trials are sent by the God of heaven who has become to us our heavenly Father. And so he sends his trials upon us out of his infinite love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, John says, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. We are, as believers, the children of the living God. And an earthly father always acts out of love for his children. And so we can be certain that our Heavenly Father is perfect in all of his ways, and every trial that he sends upon us as his children in this life It is always sent to us out of his heart of infinite love toward us. A third thing that we may always know is that our trials are sent out of his infinite wisdom. He is the all-wise God, and he knows what is best and what is needful for each one of us individually. And he does not afflict us willingly, and he will not send trials that are beyond what we can bear, but he sends them out of his infinite wisdom with our highest good always in his mind. So these three things we may always know if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ of all of our trials, no matter what they may be, that they are always sent by the absolute sovereignty of God, that they are sent out of the love of our heavenly Father for us, and they are always sent out of his wisdom in with the goal toward what is best in our lives. This morning, what we want to do is consider the trials of life in this world and what our Heavenly Father sends upon us and what are his purposes in sending them. And then also what our response should be to them. The first thing we want to consider this morning is that our trials are a testing of our faith. Trials are a testing of our faith. And that's what James is telling us here as he begins in verse 2 with this command. He says, consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Nothing but joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials. And it is a most remarkable, perhaps even a shocking statement for us to hear because He is calling us to have a joyful response when our natural and our spontaneous response to our trials and difficulties seems so often to be one of distress and sorrow. And James tells us that we should have this completely different response of joy when you you encounter when these various trials come upon you Sometimes unexpectedly and unaware, you should consider it, he says, all joy. Now, James does not mean here that we should ignore the inward pain and the heartache that trials bring. But he does mean that as believers, there is another perspective which we must keep in mind as our trials come upon us, that is different from the perspective of an unbeliever. Because when trials come upon an unbeliever, 
He sees no other purpose, no other end to those trials than pain and trouble, and his only desire is to be delivered from them immediately. He cannot consider a trial to be any joy. But for a Christian, we may see that God has a good purpose in mind in our trials, and that's why James calls us to consider it all joy, as he says in the beginning of verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's why we consider it joy, because we know something. We know something of God's purpose, why he is sending it, and it is for the testing of your faith. The trials of verse 2 are the testing of your faith in verse 3. This is one of the reasons God sends trials for the testing of our faith, for the purifying of our faith, for the strengthening of our faith. Faith is like gold. Gold must pass through the fiery furnace to be tested, to be purified to be made genuine. And so faith must pass through the fires of adversity to be purified and to be brought to its maturity. You would not want gold unless you knew that that gold was purified by fire. And God looks upon faith and he wants our faith to be purified as well. Just like the goldsmith purifies his gold, so God purifies our faith by the trials that we sent, that he sends upon us. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7. He says, you greatly rejoice even now for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what James is telling us here is that in verse 3, the testing of your faith produces endurance. He means it matures. Faith matures. Faith grows stronger And it produces this endurance, this perseverance and steadfastness and fortitude in the Christian life. Faith that is tested results in this unwavering commitment and allegiance to Christ and to his ways. And then James tells us in verse 4, he says, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Perfect here does not mean sinless. Perfect means mature in character. It means that our trials bring us into this growth and development in the graces of the Christian life. The word complete here in verse 4 is used of one who is sick and then he was healed and he was brought to perfect health. This is the word that Peter used in chapter 3 of the book of Acts when he healed the man who was lame at the temple gate, and he said, this man stands before you here in perfect health. The same word. But James here, James is not talking about physical health. 
our being being brought to perfect physical health. He is being he is speaking here of our souls being healed. Our souls being healed because of the sickness of sin that is within us. And so there is no higher goal that there could be for us than to have the sickness of our sin healed. And this is God's purpose in the trials to produce this completeness. So at the end of verse 4, he says that you are lacking in nothing so that you are bearing all good fruit and everything that you should have as a mature man or woman in Christ. This is how we are to review our trials, to consider them joy, because though they are painful as we pass through them, yet God has this great design as our loving Heavenly Father in his wisdom and in his eternal perspective of what is good and right for us in the long run to bring us to this goal of endurance that we may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing in the Christian life. What do trials bring upon unbelievers? They bring bitterness only upon unbelievers. But they may bring in the life of a Christian good fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the graces of the Christian life. And so this is how we should view them, that God sends them upon us for this purpose, not for bitter fruit, but for the good fruit of a Christian life knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the trials of the Christian life are for the testing of our faith. The second reason why God sends trials is trials are a testing of our character. And we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, a testing of our character. We'll be looking at a number of these verses here this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. And God says here in verse 1, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And so the people of Israel here, they are about to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land, Moses exhorts them to keep God's commandments that they may prosper. And then he reminds them of what they've been through in the 40 years in the wilderness in verse 2. And he says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he may humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. They were to remember the ways that God led them through the wilderness the past 40 years. By remembering his ways with them, it would strengthen and increase their faith. If they forgot his ways with them, it would lead to unbelief and disobedience. They were to remember, he says, how he led you in the wilderness, in that barren wilderness where there were so many afflictions and troubles for 40 years that came upon them, the heat, the barrenness of that desert land, the scorching sun, the trials, the wars, 
the temptations of the pagan nations, the dangers of their enemies, the serpents, the wild beasts, all of these hardships and afflictions and trials of the wilderness, God's purpose was, he says, that he might humble you, that he might humble you and make you feel your weakness, that he might make you feel your dependence upon him in all things. And then he says there in verse 2 that he was testing you to know what was in your heart. That's what outward trials do to us in the wilderness of this present world. They bring the inward things that are in our hearts out for us to see. There are things in our hearts that we cannot see right now, but when God sends trials upon us, then it brings those things out into the open for us to see, to know what was in your heart. Now, God always knows what's in our hearts, but he wants us to see what is in our hearts that we might know, that we might be humbled, that we might know more dependence upon him. And then at the end of the verse, the trials prove whether we would keep his commandments or not. So when trials come, the question is, what will we do with the trials? Will we continue to walk in obedience to what God says in his word? Or will we turn aside from the way of obedience? That's what often happens to people. Many will serve God when things are easy and comfortable. But when trials come, then they turn aside. And they say to themselves, well, it is not worth it for me anymore to follow the Lord. And so they turn away from the way of obedience. That's what we see with the sower and the seed. In that parable, there are some who, when they hear the word, they have great joy initially. But then trials, afflictions, and troubles come upon them. And what happens to them? They quickly path, they quickly fall away and turn away from their obedience. We see the opposite with Job. Satan said, or the Lord rather said to Satan, that there is no one like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Thou hast made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. And Satan said, But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and surely he will curse you to your faith. face. Satan knew. Satan knew. That's what trials do to men so often. It causes them to turn aside from their obedience and to turn away from the Lord. And that's what he was saying in regard to Job. You have blessed him. You have given him all these things. You have put a hedge about him. But if you begin to afflict him, you'll see what he's really made of. But Job proved that he had real obedience. He proved in the trial as God tested him that he would continue to keep God's commandments. So Job is the good example for us to follow. He did prove what God said, that he was a, a blameless and upright man and a man fearing God and turning away from evil, even in the midst of the great afflictions that came upon him. And so Job gives us the example to follow.
We see the same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were put into the fiery furnace. We see the same thing with Daniel when he was placed into the lion's den. And we see the same thing with our Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer to the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5 and verse 8, although he was a son, although he was the son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he was made perfect through the sufferings of his trials. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So God uses trials to test our character and to make us know our need of him. A third thing we can say of his purpose in our trials is that trials are, his, are God's fatherly discipline of us. We'll turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll read verses 5 through 11. And the writer says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not think that it means nothing when God's disciplines come. Do not think carelessly of it as if it is of no regard. He says, nor faint, nor faint when you are approved by him. Do not collapse. Do not give up all hope when you are reproved from him. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best, seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the apostle says our relationship with God is like that of a father to his children. And a father disciplines his children that his children might walk in the ways that are good and right. And so it is with God as our heavenly father and we as his children. He desires us to walk in holiness. He will not sit by when we go astray. He loves us too much as our heavenly father. And he will discipline, he will correct us and bring us back into the way of truth. He says in verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. In verse 10, earthly fathers disciplined us. Our earthly fathers did as seemed best to them, but the best earthly father often falls short. But God, as our heavenly father, he disciplines us in ways that are always perfect. 
because he knows each one of his children perfectly, exhaustively, what we need, what particular discipline should be used. He never errs. He never goes too far. He never disciplines us with more than we are able to bear. He never regrets what he has done. He is perfect in all of his discipline. And his aim is always for our highest and eternal good, that we would be like him in his character and we would share his holiness. That's what he says at the end of verse 10. He disciplines us for our good, for our eternal good, that we may share his, his own holiness is his goal. This discipline is not does not seem to be joyful often. As he says in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. He is not contradicting James. He is just mindful of the human effect, the human perspective of our trials. It does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet afterward, he says at the end of verse 11, it brings forth the fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God's discipline of us is never for a is never a condemnation upon us. It is always out of his love as our heavenly father to bring us to this eternal good. So when discipline comes upon us whatever the form of the trial might be it is an occasion for us to examine ourselves and see if there's any sin any harmful way in our lives that we are not dealing with as we should? Is there any path of willful disobedience that we are in that we have not dealt with as we should? It is an occasion for us to make such an examination that we would be trained by his discipline and make progress in the way of holiness. We would not say that every trial is a discipline. That is not true. But they are occasions for us to willingly place ourselves before the mirror of the word of God and to see if we are doing the will of God as we should. Matthew Henry writes, the hand and rod of God are his rebukes for sin. Though God may let others go alone, he may let others alone in their sins. He will correct sin in his own children. They are of his family and shall not escape his rebukes when they need them. Afflictions rightly endured, though they may be the fruits of God's displeasure, yet they are proofs of his heavenly Father's love for us as his people and his care for us. A fourth way in which we should view our trials is that trials should increase our submission to God, our submission to God. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 5. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. Our submission to God in verses 6 and 7. He says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because 
he cares for you. Now, Peter was writing to Christians who were under severe trials at this time. If we look back to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do not think that some strange thing is happening to you when suffering comes, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So back in chapter 5, in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, realizing that your trials have come upon us by the mighty hand of God. We should not resist. We should not rebel against that mighty hand of God. We should bring ourselves under submission to him. We should bow low. Our wills bring our wills into submission to his will. We should entrust our cares into his hands. And we should know that everything he does is not for our harm, but for our good. We should accept the twists and turns of providence, whatever they may be. Humility and submission to God are fitting in times of trial in this life. And when we do so, the promise is found at the end of verse 6 that he may exalt you at the proper time. God will not leave us in under the trials of this life forever. There's a promise there. He will exalt us by deliverance out of the trial in this present life, by increasing our fellowship and the spiritual graces of Christ in our hearts, by delivering us in the world to come when he delivers all of us out of the trials of this world into his eternal kingdom, he will eventually exalt us in the highest possible way out of our trials. Until he does so, in verse 7, we should be casting all our anxiety upon him because we know that he cares for us. That's how our anxiety comes upon us when we think that we must take care of everything ourselves and God does not care for us. This is how great anxieties come upon us. Who will care for me in my trial? Who will help me? Who will protect me? Who will provide for me? The answer is the mighty hand of God that brought you under the trial. His mighty hand will deliver you, exalt you, and he will care for you through all of your trials. These suffering believers, they were tempted to think that their trials were a sign that God had lost his care for them. Peter says, no, the great mighty God, he will never forget his children. He will never lose his care over you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7, casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Take your anxiety in prayer and cast it upon him and upon him alone, knowing that this is certain, that he cares with his infinite love and wisdom for you. Another reason why our another reason for our trials is that trials should increase our dependence on God. And we can turn to 
2 Corinthians chapter 7. Our dependence on God. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. And Paul says in verse 7, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, and with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In verse 7, Paul speaks of that trial that came upon him. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It could be translated rather a stake in the flesh, not just a little thorn. There was an intensity of the trial, a painful physical affliction. He says that it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. It brought humiliation. It brought weakness upon him. In some ways, it was disabling it was an affliction that lasted for a long time and it seemed it would not leave the apostle and the trial was so severe in verse 8 three times he asked for the Lord that it might depart from him. He probably set apart three separate occasions of earnest focused prayer for deliverance from this trial. The Lord answered him in verse 9 and said my grace is sufficient for you. For power, my power is perfected in weakness. Paul was an apostle. He was a very special servant of Jesus. Three times he asked the Lord to remove this trial from him. And his prayers were heard. Yes, they were heard because the Lord answered him. In verse 9. But the Lord did not answer him according to what he desired. Jesus' response was, I will not deliver you from the trial, but I will give you grace, my grace, to uphold you in the trial. My grace, but my grace, grace that comes from me and power that comes from me, it will be sufficient for you. And my power will be proven to be perfect and complete in your sufferings and in your weakness. So grace does not deliver us from our trials always. But grace gives us the strength to live as we should through our trials. The trial that Paul speaks of made him aware of his weakness and his insufficiency, that he could not pass through it in his own strength, and it drove him to a sense of need and dependence on the Lord. And so he went to God in prayer and the tense of the verbs in verse 9 mean that this was the final and the standing answer of the Lord 
that nothing was going to change. And what that meant was that Paul had to continue. He had to continue now in prayer from this time forward for the grace and power of Christ to be with him in the trial. The trial was not to be taken away. And the only way through it was by the continuing grace and power of Jesus to him. And so trials make us pray and trials make us more dependent upon the grace and power of Christ to help us. When life is easy, when life is comfortable, and when things go well for us, then what happens to us? Our hearts grow cold often at a distance from the Lord, but our trials bring us back and draw us closer and make us more dependent and more prayerful to him. Another reason for our trials is our trials make us long for heaven. Our trials make us long for heaven back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll just turn back here. Actually, let's turn to chapter 1 first. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul here speaks of some of his trials and how heavy, severe they were. We read in chapter 1 verse 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So here in these verses, Paul speaks of the intensity the severity, the heaviness of these trials. In verse 8, he says, we were burdened excessively. And so much so, he says, it was beyond all our human strength. And we were despairing, he says, despairing even of life. No worse despair could there be than to despair even of life. The sentence of death seemed to be upon ourselves. That was the trial that he went through. And then... We turn over to chapter 4, chapter 4, and he returns now in chapter 4 to speak of these same trials and the burdensome afflictions that he was under, verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So now he returns to this discussion of his trials with a different heavenly perspective. In verse 17, he compares his earthly afflictions to the heavenly glory which awaits him. And he says that his earthly trials, they are momentary, he says, they do not seem to be momentary to us when we pass through them, but they, they seem to be so long and so extended, but they are momentary, he means, when they are compared to eternity. And he says that they are light. 
They seem so heavy, so burdensome, so grievous, but they are light in comparison to the great weight of eternal glory which awaits the believer. So this is the way it is for us in our trials when we pass through them. Our present trial seems so long, so drawn out, so protracted. But when we, when we place them beside eternity, then we see how short, fleeting, and momentary they really are. They seem so distressing, so crushing, so hard to bear up under. But then when we place them beside the eternal weight of the glory, of the world which is to come, then they seem so light in comparison. This is what Paul is saying in verse 17. And then he tells us how he can say this in verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. At the end of verse 18, the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are seen are the trials and the afflictions of this present life. But then the things which are not seen, they are the eternal world which is to come. The things of this world, the trials of this world are only temporal. They only last for a little while. But the things of the world to come, which we cannot see with our eyes, but we can only see through faith in the scriptures, they are eternal and they will last forever and ever. That's the inheritance that belongs to us as believers through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we look down to chapter 7 and verse, chapter 5 rather, chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight he says, we are a good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. See, after he considers the trials and afflictions in verses 17 and 18, then he says, I have something that I would prefer, and it is to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord, our true home, which is to be found with our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what trials do. They force us to lift up our eyes from this world to the world which is to come. They make us to see how fleeting, how trivial, how empty and vain this world really is. And they make us to see a little more of the surpassing glory of the world which is to come. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I am hard pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That is what trials do for the Christian they make us to set our minds upon the things above and desire more to be with him, with Christ, who is at the right hand of God. When we have what we want in this present world, and when things go for us as we wish, then our hearts become 
too attached to the things of this world. And we begin to say to ourselves, it is good for us to be here. And this world becomes too much of our home. And that's not the will of our Heavenly Father because he has sent his beloved son Jesus into the world to the death of the cross. And by the cross he has purchased an eternal glory that is to come. And our Father's desire is for us to desire that eternal glory above everything in this present world. To not love the world nor the things of the world. For all that is in the world the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It is all from the world and not from the Father, and it is passing away, and it is his will, and he sends the trials to turn us in the direction of heaven, to loosen our attachment and to make it easier and more desirable for us to leave these things. The last thing we'll look at is trials conform us to Christ very briefly. Trials conform us to Christ in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. He says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In verse 28, he mentions God causing, this is something that we should know as Christians, God causes all things to work together for our good, for our eternal good, our eternal good is described in verse 28, that he would conform us to the image of his son. Our eternal good is not always what is most pleasurable for us, what is easiest for us. Our eternal good is not always what we desire, what we think, but it is according to his will. In the surrounding passage, he mentions sufferings. Back up in verse 18, that we, in verse 17, that we suffer with him. Down in verse 35, he mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. All of these things, all of these things are the things that he works out together for the good, for our good to those who love God. And the purpose is that we would be conformed to Christ in verse 29. And Jesus was a man who suffered in this present world. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief in all of his life. But now he is in glory in heaven. And we follow him. If we follow him, we must follow in his pathway. And so there are these trials and troubles in this life that conform us to his image. This is what God is doing. He is conforming us to the image of his son. We are sharing in the sufferings of Christ in the trials of this life. He has a purpose for us that is for our eternal good. So all of our trials, they come under the sovereignty of God, under the love of God, under the wisdom of God. And they all have this great and glorious goal to conform us to the image of Christ. Back in verse 17, Paul says, If children, then we are heirs also, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So these are our trials. For our highest good, we should submit to them. We should be dependent upon God. We should trust him. We should keep his commandments. We should keep ourselves prayerful. We should long more for heaven that with air we will be perfectly conformed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, O Lord, have great mercy upon us. Help us through all of our trials, all the troubles, the disappointments, the struggles of this present life. Thank you that you have promised that your grace is sufficient for us. And thank you that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, help us to cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties upon you, knowing that you care for us. And Lord, be at work and sanctify us through all of our trials, that we may be more like your beloved Son. Forgive us of so many sins. Forgive us of resistance in our own hearts against your will. Have mercy upon us and be at work to do much good. We pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.